And on Pesach in 1833, the Karite synagogue, in fact, the Karite neighborhood, saw this quarrel become very public. Firkovich and the Cohen brothers uh, traded public insults and curses, and they moved from there to fist fights and to throwing objects at each other in the synagogue during prayers. And he interrogates him about his beliefs. And in the process, he gets to a point that this group of people were so bizarre in their newly found belief that they are not Rabbinite or Karite, but just some third unidentified category. And therefore he resolved that the Rabbinite community should have nothing to do with these Talmud-denying renegades, as he put it. And if they want, you know, they could found a religion of their own. I mean, to give you an idea of his fake research, uh, that was only unearthed, um, no pun intended, years later, he discovered ancient Karite graves with Hebrew inscriptions. The problem was that the dates on these inscriptions were so old, they were older than the town itself. Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian, and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. Robert Hirsch, welcome back. I hope you had a very safe trip to Toronto and uh, we're recording on a Friday now because you just uh, just about landed. How was, uh, how was it? For Hashem, yes, the wedding was very nice and uh, spoke in various shawls and communities and uh, met loads of fans no doubt i met people who were listening to the podcast yes and it was a little on the cold side but other than that the people were very warm so that made up for it nice okay uh before we start we had more than the usual amount of feedback for last week's due to a uh, contradiction that people raised Yes, so four listeners, in fact, particularly questioned how Purim could be observed by the Karaites in Adar Rishon if they didn't keep rabbinic festivals. And indeed, it wasn't the rabbinic main festival of Purim that is affected by whether there's one or two Adars for them, but rather any observance of a localized Purim in a particular community that would be kept in the first Adar. And in fact, for more stories and history on localized Purims, I would refer listeners to our two-part series that we recorded a couple of years ago on Purim Katon around the world, which included Cairo and Prague and Russia and others. And the other emails we received were asking about the topic in general. Many had questions about where the carrots are now. So we urge the listeners if they can hold fire on their questions till we finish the series and most of the questions will probably get answered by then. So we ended last week with a letter from the Gniza, which described the dilemma of a particular Karite family from Spain. And that was when they arrived in Israel. But you also mentioned a second letter from the Gniza relevant to the Karites. Yes. And in fact, not only a second letter about Jews from Spain, but Jews from Toledo itself. Although this one is 
400 years later, in the mid-1400s, and times have changed. Spain in particular has changed from a mostly Muslim country that was quite welcoming to the Jews to a Christian country which is quite hostile. Spain really deteriorates from 1350 onwards, and by 1450, thousands of Jews had converted to Christianity. They are called New Christians, and this includes our refugee travelers, although the Inquisition had not yet been established in Spain. That would be in 1478. So in 1449, there were riots against New Christians in Toledo, and we assume that these events prompted the converted Jews to leave and look for safety or shelter in Egypt, um, where they could revert to being Jews. And they arrive in Egypt in 1459, having, well, having undergone baptism and now reversion to Judaism. But things are never that straightforward with Jews. Something was troubling these travelers and continued to do so for six years until they reached Cairo in 1465. When they came to the capital city, they secretly confessed to the elders of the Karite community that they rejected the Mishnah, the Talmud, and I guess by extension, all of rabbinic tradition. However, in their travels through Egypt, they had heard off-putting reports about the Karites, that they interpreted the text in such an ultra-literal fashion, so that, for instance, they forbade the eating of pork from pigs, but not from the female sow. Um, and therefore, these refugees didn't know, they, they sort of had doubts, which Jewish community should they join, who has the, you know, the lower membership fees. And it happened that the Karite and Rabbanite calendars for 1465 disagreed over the date of Yom Kippur. And two of these Toledans, um, David and Joseph, announced that they were going to fast on the date of the Karite calendar. And the Rabbanite community learns about this. So the head of the Rabbanite community, the Nagid, he sent for David and he interrogates him about his beliefs. And in the process, he gets to a point that this group of people were so bizarre in their newly found belief that they are not Rabbanite or Karite, but just some third unidentified category. And therefore, he resolved that the Rabbanite community should have nothing to do with these Talmud-denying renegades, as he put it. And if they want, you know, they could found a religion of their own. And the underlying this is the fact that religious communal life under the Mamluks in the 15th century was much more rigid than it had been in the 11th century. And the community, the Jewish community, didn't want trouble from the rulers of Egypt as a result of these strange new Jews. In fact, um, a second rabbinite came up with an ingenious solution to the problem, and he said, let them convert to Islam because they've already converted in Spain. And according to Islamic law, all conversions to another religion have to be to Islam. So all in all, this is a very unusual setup. You have these Jews proclaiming their own beliefs, but sort of leaning towards joining the Karaites. And you think to yourself, okay, fine, <laughs> let them do their own thing. But it's actually a much bigger headache. It's almost a crisis for the Karaites because... 
The carrots are now worried if word gets out that when people change from one type to another under a quite rigid government, the government might start investigating carrot beliefs and inquiring as to whether they're really Jewish. Is it the same religion? So just to be clear, the issue is that anyone changing to become carrot would then have to become Muslim instead. Correct. So the Karaites come up with a solution to what is quite a headache, and they say, let's get a responsum written on the matter. Who's going to write the responsum? Not the Jews, the Muslims, as to the status of Jews. And there were four Qadis who they could ask for a religious answer for you know, Muslim poiskim, and you could shop around for heterim. You could take whichever opinion you liked. And therefore, if they ask all four of them separately without the others knowing, they could just use whichever one came in with the greatest leniency. And the question is, can Rabbinites convert to being Karaites or do they have to become Muslims? Is it one religion or two? Which is obviously the paradox of Karaites asking Muslim jurists what precisely is Jewish heresy is uh, (laughs) somewhat ironic. And they got answers in which most of the judges uh, agreed that uh, the two are actually one religion, but the dissenting opinion, which obviously they didn't publicize, said that if the two groups differ, not in practice, but in belief, so that each group really regards the other as heretical, then anyone who converts, indeed, has to convert to Islam. So it's interesting, based on you know how we mentioned the Rumbum's opinion last week. Kind of makes sense from these Muslim postgame. Yeah, yes. Yeah, basically. But all in all, because they had the lenient opinions, they dodged the bullet. And this is all contained in that letter in the Geniza. You have uh, politics, religion and history all in one. Wow. That letter's available for viewing? Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so back to the history of the Karaites. So you spoke about the communities in the Middle East, um, Yerushalayim, Egypt, but you also hinted the fact that it spread further and possibly till today. Yes, yes. I mean, I will take spread further to mean geographically rather than chronologically, right? But uh, let's deal with, in fact, both. So, yes, two important Karite communities emerge in the late Middle Ages, and the center of Karite life moves from the Middle East and Egypt to Crimea and Eastern Europe. Now, the Crimean Peninsula, southern Ukraine, much in the news, obviously, in the last couple of years, has been home to Jews from ancient times. Even the first century BCE, you had Hellenistic Jews, as well as those who were known as God-fearers, who are living in Greek cities of the northern Black Sea. And the Jewish community continues there, potentially without interruption, until the 11th century. We have documents from that time? Not really. We've got references to them here and there, but not actual documentation. The earliest reliable account is the travels of Rav Sachia of Regensburg, which are around 1180. During his travels in Ukraine, he writes, In the land of Kedar, which was the name for it at the time, there are no Jews, but there are heretics, minim. And Rabsachia said to them, why don't you believe in the words of the Chachamim? And they answered, because our fathers didn't teach them. He then says, on Friday night, they cut bread and eat in the dark. 
and they stay in one place the whole day, and they use only Tehillim as their prayers. And when Rav Sachia told them of our prayers and the blessing after meals, they said, we've never heard of the Talmud. So we do have an account going back to the 12th century. At the beginning of the 13th century, Crimea becomes part of the Tatar-Mongol Empire. And by the 14th century, most of the local population had adopted Islam, although the rulers weren't always Muslim. And there are four or five main cities there. Sulkat was the local capital, and it actually means a ditch or entrenchment in Mongolian. The city was established around a Mongolian um, army camp, and the first mosque was built there in 1261. But we have Jewish records. The Karite scholar, Aaron ben Yosef, was the author of Sefer HaMivchar, and he was probably born there, but he definitely witnessed an event there in 1278 when an argument broke out between the Karaites and the Rabbinites consider, con, well, concerning the Moilad of Tishri, and therefore when to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, which is, in fact, this testimony is the earliest one that points to the existence of Karite Jews in Crimea. Although, interestingly enough, we find a Rabbinite scholar, uh, Rabbi Avram Kirmi, who wrote Sfas Emes in 1358 on the request of the Karite Nasi Chizkyo ben Elchonon. Just to be clear, not the Sfas Emes that most are familiar with. Not the Sfas Emes that most are familiar with, which was written 500 years later. Yes. Um, and there is a Jewish gravestone today in the courtyard of the local museum, which is probably about a century later. And the inscription writes that it was a leap year. But since the year in question wasn't a leap year, according to the Rabbinites, this must be a Karite gravestone. That's in Sulkat. In Kaffa, uh, the Jewish presence there is also quite well documented. Um, already in the late 13th century, there was a Karite synagogue. And it was a port which Jews were attracted to because it was one of the largest in the world at the time at the northern end of the Silk Route. And the city's economy was based on trade with the Far East, trade in slaves. Um, and you find at the end of the 14th or beginning of the 15th century, there is a captive German soldier who writes that there were two kinds of Jews in the city, Karaites and Rabbinites. They had two synagogues and a thousand houses, both in the city and in outlying areas. And in 1455, we have a document which the leaders of the Jewish community had put their signatures to. One is Ovadia ben Moshe, one is Nisanel ben Avram. You then have Kanibe ben Passa. Uh, Yaakov ben Rabani and Kokoz ben Yishak. And it's possible that the stranger sounding names are um, Karite, but not necessarily. Then you have Kufut Kale, which translates as Jews Fortress. And this is the most famous town in the area. In fact, to this day, you can see Jewish cemeteries there, synagogues going back to the 1400s, but no one ever goes there. You have Matsevas, tombstones, which you can read. There's one, Manus 
Bas Elia from 1354, Hillel ben Moshe 1356. So it's actually something that is still there to this day. Now, in 1475, the Crimea was conquered by the Ottoman Empire, and there is a Rabbanite community in Kaffa, which includes now Ashkenazim, Romaniot, Svardim, Babylonians, and others, all of which is headed by one individual, quite unusual, uh, Rav Moshe Hagoyle Harusi, the Russian exile, literally. He was an exile from Kiev. He wrote a book called Minhag Kaffa, and he'd been taken captives by the Tatars in Lithuania and brought to the Crimea in 1506. And then you have in the 17th century, a Turkish non-Jewish traveler visits Crimea a number of times. And he says that even the commander of the fortress and the soldiers in the fortress, the guards and the gatekeepers, they're all Jews. And that there were 1,530 houses belonging to the Jews. That doesn't necessarily mean that there were Jews in all these houses. And that the poor members of the community lived in caves, which were carved from the rock. And that still exists? Uh, well, I haven't been, but I have seen pictures of these rock houses taken, you know, recently in the last couple of decades. So, yes. In the 18th century, numbers drop, but Crimea remains the sort of headquarters of Karaites in the world. And, uh, you know, in Sulkat, we're told there's a regular house of study, and they study all day from morning till night without a break. So this is sort of an overview of Crimea for five centuries, from basically 1300 to 1800. And you could almost say that time stood still. For these people, that life didn't change much during those centuries, whether Karite or Rabbanite Jews, they paid you know, equal taxes. They paid it together to the local Muslim governments. They helped each other in times of trouble. They dressed similarly in Tatar dress. They spoke the same Tatar language, whereas, let's say, in the rest of Eastern Europe, Rabbanites and Karites were further apart. For one thing, they spoke different languages, Yiddish or a unique Karite Turkic dialect. But it's true that uh, both of them were still paying taxes to whatever it is, the Polish government, as one group, and all of them were still seen as the Jews. And obviously, therefore, they both suffered from the massacres of uh, Khmelnytsky in 1648-49. So you're saying even outside of the Crimea, the Orthodox and the Karaites you said they were seen as Jews, but they did they see themselves as one people? I mean, that's not a simple question to answer. They saw themselves definitely as one people of one origin, and they were halachically Jewish, uh, but they had very different ways of religious life, and they did have some major rifts, as we will come to. So having said all that, almost by way of introduction, the story changes in 1783 because Russia, basically Catherine the Great, took over the Crimea now from the Ottoman Empire. And after a long period of peaceful living, Jews find themselves ruled by those who were unwilling to accept them, and they become the object of uh, discriminatory laws, of special taxation, of long-term conscription into the army. Although the one, I guess, silver lining is that as a result, the world's 
largest collection of Karite manuscripts are nowadays to be found in Russia, in the uh, former capital of St. Petersburg, which for a while was also known as Leningrad, in the Russian National Library. And one person was responsible for this, a guy called Avram Firkovich, who we actually mentioned in our podcasts on the Geniza, and therefore the collections today are known as the Firkovich collections. He is the most famous Karite of the 19th century, possibly the most famous Karite ever. He's born in the Ukraine in a place called Lutsk, and is a very um, colorful figure who spent most of his life in the Crimea, and his fate and that of the Karite Jews in Russia, particularly in Crimea, would become interwoven. And he is the person I would like to now speak about in detail. As we will see, his life is quite unusual, quite interesting. His life's mission was to ensure the survival and promotion of this small Karite community. And he would do this whatever it took. Because in his view, the, um, you know, the title Jew had been usurped by millions of Ashkenazi heretics. The fact that he was a tiny minority didn't bother him at all. And he therefore presents his community to the authorities as an ancient Hebrew group that split from the rest of Israel. But we mean 2000 years ago. Why would anyone care? Well, it's not just to show that we've been around for a long time. There's something far more important. He could now claim that his community wasn't responsible for those things that Christians accuse the Jews of, the crucifixion, uh, the creation of the Talmud, all these superstitions, the, this uh, parasitical way of life. Obviously, it had nothing to do with the Karaites because they were already formed before these Rabbinites um, did all these things. So his agenda was peacemaking. With the governments? Uh, yes, I guess you could put it that way. I don't know if I would use peacemaking, but his agenda was political. Perhaps put it that way. Now, he is not the first to make these arguments, but he's definitely the most influential. And it turns out to be a very winning argument, because clearly, if they are different Jews, then they are not the type of Jew that should be subject to discrimination, to the, you know, burdensome laws that the rabbinites are placed under. And remember, this is Tsarist Russia, where they will go on to create hundreds of laws against the Jews. So being on the other side of the fence was very advantageous. And the Karaites first make the arguments for preferential treatment to Maria Theresa in Austria, because there were some small Karaite communities, I mean, not more than 200 people, in some of the towns in Galicia, which was the area in southern Poland that was incorporated into the Austrian Empire after 1772, and uh, Maria Theresa agrees. And a royal decree is issued in 1774, which exempts the Austrian Karaites from the marriage tax and half of the poll tax because they are not like those Jews. And soon after, the Russian Karaites asked for an exemption because the Tsarist regime imposed a poll tax on the Jews in 1795, double that imposed on the Christians. And Catherine the Great said to Solomon Babovich, who was the head of the Crimean community, fine, no problem. You're not like them. But till now, all these exemptions were financially based. Things move from financial to life and death in 1827. Tsar Nicholas I created a decree requiring the conscription of Jews, including small children, for army service. 
the infamous Cantonist decree, which would take the lives of thousands of Jews, especially you know, teenage Jews. And one of the aims of this act was, and I quote, liberating the Jews from the immoral influence of the Talmud and Hasidic rabbis. Which, by the way, it should be noted that quite a number of radical maskilim Jews sided with the government in order to pull the Jews away from the Talmud. Be that as it may, Nicholas I's law applied to the Karaites as well. And therefore, in the Crimea, to prevent this from happening, another delegation is sent uh, to petition. And the head of this delegation is Simcha Babovich, the son of Solomon. He's the richest man in the Crimea. He, you know, spreads bribes all over the place, and he got his way. And in fact, Firkovich will translate this major event into a book called The Deliverance of Israel, which is to be read in the synagogues on public occasions, obviously in Karite synagogues. So now it's actually becoming dangerous to be identified as a Jew. Did the Karites still see themselves as Jews, seeing that they seem to be drifting further and further away? Yes, they are drifting they are still identifying themselves as Israel, but the cracks are now forming, and they will become even more pronounced in 1863 when the Karaites, but not the majority of Jews, receive full recognition as Russian citizens, and it will set the stage for an even more dramatic break that would follow in certain regions when they would essentially no longer identify as Jews, as we will see next week, because think of the Holocaust in that context. So, back to Firkovich, to the main achievements in his life. In 1830, Firkovich accompanies Babovich, the head of the Crimean community, to Eretisrael. And on the way, he collects books, ancient books. He's buying them from anybody, Karaites, Rabbinites, and they would form part of the collection which is currently in St. Petersburg. Although a cholera epidemic breaks out, and therefore they can't, you know, carry out their full pilgrimage. And on the way back to the Crimea, they stop in Istanbul. Firkovich settles there. There is a small Karite community, probably no more than 30 or 40 families. And in Istanbul, Firkovich publishes a translation of Chumish into the Turkic language, which the Karites from Crimea spoke. But the Karites of Istanbul saw him as a, you know, a reform Karite before um, translating this stuff into a different language. And it wasn't helped by the fact that Firkovich had a, uh, a very quick temper and he made enemies easily. And in this particular case, particularly the influential Cohen family. And on Pesach in 1833, the Karite synagogue, in fact, the Karite neighborhood, saw this quarrel become very public. Firkovich and the Cohen brothers uh, traded public insults and curses, and they moved from there to fist fights and to throwing objects at each other in the synagogue during prayers. And at one stage, Yitzhak Cohen locked the synagogue to prevent Firkovich and his Crimean followers from entering, although he finally relents and he opens the synagogue. And then when he begins to lead the service, Firkovich corrects aloud, and presumably with great satisfaction, Yitzhak Cohen's mistakes in pronunciation of Hebrew words. And eventually, unsurprisingly, Firkovich is basically um, pushed out of town, shall we say. Now, 
1834, he is the head of the Karak Publishing House in uh, Gozleva in the Crimea, and he publishes a virulently anti-Rabbinic book in which he accuses the Rabbinites of crucifying Yeshu and also of killing Anun ben David for good measure. And he followed this by another book called Massa or Mariva, Strife and Quarrel, which by its title, you can guess, did not speak very fondly of the sages of the Talmud. In 1839, Mikhail Vorontsov, the governor general of the region and of Crimea, sent the Karite community questions about their history and their religious differences with the Rabbinites and their origins are, basically to define their status. And this is a big deal. So Firkovich is appointed to provide the answers, and this is how the most important stage in his life began in the autumn of 1839. To support answers with regards to origin and uh, history, he looks for manuscripts in different communities uh, going through the Genesis, and he puts together data from Matsevis, from uh, inscriptions. And the result was a collection, which is uh, very important, um, but it has one little, maybe a tiny problem, because alongside the various historical treasures, he created a complete network of forgeries and basically sheer nonsense about the Karite history. I guess all is fair in love and war. And for Fokovic, this was an opportunity to promote the Karites and make himself famous and he did so. So the forgeries were definitely deliberate. It wasn't just interpreting a text. Oh, no, 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 no. Now, Furkovich saw himself true as an historian and archaeologist, but he needed to support basically his invention of an imagined Karite past, which was, you know, 2,000 years old. So he needed evidence. And if it didn't exist, which clearly it didn't, then you just create uh, artifacts, manuscripts. No one saw through it. Well, I mean, firstly, this is a specialized area, which, you know, most academics don't know anything about. And none of them had been in southern Crimea, although I wouldn't say nobody saw through it. I mean, he's in contact with members of the, uh, the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah, who, uh, well, some of whom glamorized the Karaites because they were, you know, they didn't believe in the Talmud. So they accepted Fukovich for what he said at face value without fact-checking too closely. But yeah, a number of his contemporaries were aware of his forgeries, although only recent research has discovered the full extent of his um, quote-unquote um, scholarly dishonesty, shall we say. What sort of forgeries did he do? Okay, so a few examples. His favorite tactic to prove that the Crimean Karak community had ancient roots was to change the dates on tombstones, you know, with the aid of a chisel. So tombstones, the dates are in letters, right? The letters are, are numbers. And therefore, if you've got hay, which means 5,000, if you change the hay into a tough, then, for instance, as in the case in point, the original date was 5349, which is 1589, um, if you change that hay to a tough, it becomes 4749, i.e. 600 years earlier. Or you change a resh into a kuf by just making a slightly longer line, and you push back the date of death by 100 years. Quite clever. 
Oh, yes. Another tactic is he took manuscripts and either changed the dates of them, or when he couldn't do that, he just added extra materials. He found a safer Torah in Derbent on the Caspian Sea, which is now in the Republic of uh, Dagestan in Russia, and he just added a whole piece to it, which indicated that it was written by the descendants of exiles from the first temple who came to Crimea. So now we're, now we're going back two and a half thousand years. And it was the Persian King Cyrus that uh, sent them or allowed them to go there. And then he found a further text in a village nearby, which was an expansion of his first invention. And of course, all of these discoveries would fit into an idea that he already had. So he knew sort of where to plug it in. And basically, it ends up that the Karaites were already in Crimea at the time of the founding of Christianity, and therefore they're not responsible for his crucifixion. And then he also added that some Karaites were descendants from the Khazars, this um, likely now historical event of a kingdom converting to Judaism sometime in the 8th or 9th century. Uh, but he claims totally uh, without foundation, that it was uh, the Khazars became Karite and not Rabbinite, and I quote, uh, the book, uh, i.e. the book of the Kuzari, uh, was edited in the year 740 by Isaac Sangari under the title of a dis dissertation with the king of the Khazars, and it found its way to one of the Talmudists by the name of uh, Yehuda Halevi 400 years later, and he reworked it for his own needs. However, at that time in 740, there were no Rabbinite Jews in the Crimea. And of course, he then presented uh, tombstones, which he'd found in the cemetery. And unlike his acts of changing the dates of existing tombstones, here they were just complete inventions. But all of it would give the Karaites antiquity and respectability, and they would therefore get full status as Russian citizens. I mean, to give you an idea of his fake research uh, that was only unearthed, um, no pun intended, years later, he discovered ancient Karite graves with Hebrew inscriptions. The problem was that the dates on these inscriptions were so old, they were older than the town itself. So, listen, he's not the only academic to have invented results. It happens on an ongoing basis where there is, I don't know, uh, political goodwill or no oversight, even into the 21st century. So, presumably, Firkovich submitted his reports to the Russian authorities. Absolutely. In fact, eventually he wrote a book called Avne Zikorin about these tombstones. And, you know, nowadays, if you compare his drafts against the printed version, you find tombs disappearing, appearing, reappearing, different dates. He has 564 in inscriptions from the cemetery, but there are only 400 tombstones. You know, and he was never one to do things by half measures. So he created new biographies for these people, not just new tombstones. He ascribed books to them that they'd never written, forged their signatures on scrolls. And although it would appear that his forgeries are basically politically motivated, sometimes he seems to have simply enjoyed creating these uh, inscriptions with his chisel. It gets quite enjoyable after time. So his agenda of sort of painting the Karite Jews in a better light to government officials, how many roughly people are we talking about this affecting? Because he's going to incredibly long and deep measures to paint a history, a fake history. What was the effect? Well, first of all, it's thousands of people. And second of all, it's a number of different countries. And they are all under the czarist regime. 
So the agenda is broad in that sense. And he becomes well known in certain political circles. In fact, when the new Tsar Alexander II was crowned in Moscow, he was there. He represented these, um, quote-unquote, ancient Karite Jews. And he even gives the monarch a Hebrew poem dedicated to the event and moves to St. Petersburg in 1856, and is now trying to interest the Imperial Russian Library in this um, Karite collection, which they end up buying. He organizes a public relations campaign in the Russian newspapers. There were articles about him, about the religious value of his collection, and this is all juxtaposed to the negatively described Rabbinites. And therefore, the first Firkovich collection is bought by Tsar Alexander II in 1862 for an unbelievably high price. Ah, so there might have been ulterior motives to all of this. Yeah, no, no. He wants to become famous and wealthy. I see. Uh, but that's not, I would say, his guiding principle. It's definitely a reason to do this as well. Yes. And the price paid was so high that now um, in academic circles, they are saying he's definitely forging this stuff. And everyone in southern Russia knows that. But through his lobbying in 1863, the word Jew was officially removed from the members of the Karite community anywhere in the Russian um, empire. And they were granted the same rights as native Russian non-Jewish orthodox uh, people so that's quite a success yeah did the numbers of current jews grow as a result of the security they offered them to some degree yes and it is now he takes another journey to the middle east to yushalayim hebron damascus egypt and now he can use his position as a renowned collector with letters of recommendation from the russian authorities and he makes an attempt to buy the famous Keter Aram Tsova, the Tanakh manuscript in Aleppo, uh, which didn't work out, although for a large bribe, he was able to examine it and describe it in his letters. And he then decides to go to Shechem, where there had only been a few book hunters who'd been successful. And he comes up with this unique combination in order to buy from them. He um, Obviously, there's bribery. And then he emphasizes the similarities between the Karaites and the Samaritans, the Kutim, because they are based in Shechem. And he also promises to send them beautiful Karaite brides from the Crimea. And uh, he was able to buy the largest Samaritan collection ever, which also is in St. Petersburg, and the contents of an entire Karaite Geniza. And he comes back to Russia, and he settles down in um, Kufutkale, where he is one of the city's um, few residents. And Russian tourists and strangers visited him often because he adopted the, um, the manners of a biblical Hebrew patriarch. So people used to come and, uh, and see him. But the Karak community itself frowned upon him especially after he married a um, 17-year-old orphan called Shlemis and had a daughter from her. Um, and eventually he dies in 1874, but his efforts obviously live on. He raised the position of the Karaites uh, out of keeping with their numbers, as you've mentioned, but at the cost of truth and divided them away from Judaism. 
And we will see next week where the Karaites are today and the history of the 20th century pre and post World War II. So all in all, a very interesting figure. He was definitely Jewish, but um, not one of us, really. And uh, next week, we will also deal with the other major Karite community whose location may be a surprise to many. And we will also see how does Halacha view Karites nowadays. So I think we might have touched on this on the first episode as to why why people joined the Karak community. Why? What was the interest? I mean, it's we understand reform are giving a diluted version of Judaism, which could be attractive to some people who don't, who look at Judaism as being restrictive. But the Karaks who have their own restrictions, almost sometimes more stringent than Orthodox Judaism, why there were people who were joining and there were thousands of people. So I guess you've answered part of it today by saying that there was actual there were people in political power trying to paint them as non-Jews and offering them safety, yes. but you wouldn't put that as one of the main... As No, definitely not the main motivation. These were people whose belief system, as we saw in that letter from the Jews of Toledo in the mid-1400s, they're not sure which way to go. Right. Rabbi Hirsch, better get ready for Shabbos. Yes. Um, please email podcast at jd.org.uk. Uh, but maybe if you have questions, hold off till the end of the series, which will be next week. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch, and good Shabbos.